Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. We're going to get into the Word of God, and uh, we're going to kick off the year just continuing along in our sermon series, which has been called 100 Things You Should Know from the Bible. And if you're new to Harvest, what we've been doing is tracing out 100 themes or stories from the Bible, which we really feel like if you're hanging out with us as a, as a, a church for a couple years, these are things you really should know from Scripture. There, there's no particular um, filter, it's just a, a judgment call by the pastoral staff, and it was really hard to narrow the list down to 100 things. I think we began with like 200 and whittled away a bunch of stuff. I made the other pastors really upset by pulling rank and getting rid of most of their stuff, and you know, this is really mostly my list, but uh, I'm just kidding. That's not the way it works. But we have a hundred things that we really want you to hear and to know from Scripture. The tone we've tried to take is to, to not just tell you technically what the Bible says, but to give you a sense of why this is important in our lives in the first place. And hopefully you've been catching that as, we've go, as we go along. If you've been at our church for a while, you might recognize this morning's text. I preached from the same text almost exactly three years ago, on January 7, 2007. And so I apologize if for those of you guys who memorize every sermon I ever preach, and it's all up there verbatim, it might be a little boring for you to hear the same text preached on again. But chances are, you've forgotten it already, and so this will seem like a brand new sermon to most of you. And I'm counting on that. Let's just get right into it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be preaching this morning from Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. If we could flash the slides up there. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. And it's the great story of the day that the prophet Isaiah was called into ministry. And he walked into the temple and he saw a magnificent sight. I'm just going to read the passage for you once through in the NIV. As you're kind of looking at that picture there. And, and catch in your mind's eye this mental image, what, what, what Isaiah saw. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Now, it's only the last few words of that passage that are probably very familiar to most of us. Here am I. Send me. Possibly some of the most expensive words any human being could ever say to God. Isn't that true? Those are words that some of us at some point in our lives may have felt compelled to say, but something held us back and we couldn't quite get the words out because once you say those words to God, it's as though He takes possession of your life. He 
defines you, defines your destiny, and your future is no longer written simply by yourself. But God now has a very primary role in telling you what your life will look like moving forward. You know, I was thinking as I was getting ready for church this morning that how we get ready for something says an awful lot about what we think is supposed to happen when we get to that event. Isn't that true? Think about your Sunday morning routine. How do you get ready for church? I know for us at our house, I'm convicted as I even say this from the pulpit, that sometimes it's just total chaos. People yelling and running around, racing against the clock, because our family is one family that really can't be late to this thing. It wouldn't look good. It wouldn't, things would fall apart. We're supposed to be here when we're supposed to be here. And so sometimes the morning is very frantic and hurried, as though the most important thing when we get here is that we're here, that the Lee family shows up and stuff gets done. I wonder for others of us, we spend about an hour in front of the mirror. You know what I'm talking about. Trying to decide what outfit you're going to unleash on your adoring public. You know, almost as though when you walk in the building, people are going to put up scorecards ranking your outfit compared to all the other outfits. Nobody cares what you wear here. As long as you wear something, that's all we want. All right? Nobody really cares. And yet, if you look particularly nice, someone will walk up to you and say, hey, don't you look nice today? And I know for some of us, we really live for that moment. But the truth is, that's not really what is supposed to happen when we get here, is that people take note of how we look. So the question remains, what is supposed to happen when we get here? And how is that supposed to shape the way we get ready for the day? Maybe another way of talking about it is, when you get to church, what is the one indispensable ingredient that has to be part of this day or the day was really a bust. A lot of good things might happen, but unless this one thing really does happen, everything else really is a distant second place in terms of importance. And to pursue that thought a little bit, I want to tell you a story I remembered about when I was an intern living in Tijuana, Mexico, right off the beach for a month, uh, just about 100 yards shy of the U.S. border. It was a, a pretty amazing setting, but one of the most challenging spiritual uh, adventures of my life. And I remember one day we were out working among the poor, and it was just one of those grueling, tiring, dirty days, and I could not wait to get back to base after dark and take a shower. Now, when I say that, you've got to know, the shower was nasty in this place, all right? It, I find a picture that kind of reminds me of what the shower looked like. It was, it, there was not even a ceiling. It was just open air above me. It was freezing. There was no hot water, and the pipes were all rusted out, but I couldn't wait to wash the grime of the day off of me. I was so exhausted that when I got into the shower, and it was a good long walk, you know, it was really a journey to get there, I, I looked and I had a towel and nothing else. I didn't bring my soap, I didn't bring my shampoo, no detergents whatsoever, just water, cold water. Have you ever been greasy and dirty and all you had was cold water? It's not exactly the, ah, just let it, it's shivering and you're like just spreading the dirt and grease all over. But I've got to tell you, at the end of that day, I was still so thankful that there was water. Now, what if it had been the other way around? What if I had gotten to the shower, I had my body wash, my shampoo, I got it all worked in there, I turned the knob, and no water. Full of detergent, nothing to wash it off. And that led me to think, what is the indispensable ingredient of a shower? 
There are lots of things that go into it, but the one thing I must have, even to the exclusion of the other things, is water. I would much rather have a shower with no soap than with no water. Are you feeling that? That's a bit of a strained illustration, but I was thinking about that because when we come to church, we come for a lot of different things. Some of us have been trained now by this amazing food ministry team to come for the food. The food's so good, it's almost worth coming just for that. Some of you come for the absolute world-class preaching, right? Some of you totally not. Some of you come because the girl you like is here. Don't, don't look around. You give yourself away. Just stare right at it. Some of you come because your friends are here. Some of you come because this is where you've decided to call home and where else are you going to go. But whatever other things happen here, what is the one indispensable ingredient that if that doesn't happen at church, it really wasn't that worth going to church? Because that's the one thing that most needed to be there. I would submit to you that the most indispensable ingredient of being together as a church is that we would, all of us, Spend time in the presence of God. If God is not here, if you don't sense that you've been with God, but you've just been with us, then this day is far from complete for you. And if that's the consistent experience, is you share a lot of laughs and good friendship and great food and go home, after a while this will stop making a lot of sense and it won't give you the deep soul refreshment that you really need week to week in living. You know, I believe that Isaiah had an experience like that. He'd been in church hundreds of times before that point, okay? And when he came to church that one particular day, something happened. He entered God's presence, and everything changed for them after that. I believe it was like the experience of seeing clearly after needing glasses for a while, and he saw clearly maybe for the first time in his life. And I want to share from this story some of the things that Isaiah saw more clearly that we also see more clearly. I have this crooked picture of Jesus over a couch because I think sometimes we have a skewed view of who God is, but until someone points it out, until we realize what God really should be to us, we're comfortable with a tilted picture in the backdrop of our lives. Now, I'm sensitive to this because on Christmas we had a bunch of pastor's families over to my house, and uh, one of the pastors pointed out, that picture on your wall is crooked and it's really bugging me. Normally I'm kind of one of those OCD types, I would notice it, but I've been living for over a year with that picture crooked, and it never bothered me because it became the new normal. I got so used to looking at it like this, I think every time I walked by it just kind of went like that. And I think that happens a lot with us and God. We've got God in a comfortable box. We, he knows where he belongs in our lives. We're okay with just how much he asks of us, just how much we're willing to release to him. And that's God for us. We put him in that box, and he needs to just stay there. And as long as he and I don't move, we're good. We're cool. But what if the picture we're holding of God is terribly tilted? What if it's blurry? What if the God we think we know is not at all the God who lives? Who is really here with us? I think self-centeredness is poison to the soul. And in God's presence, one of the things that happens is we see Him more clearly. You know, self-centeredness starts to happen. I'm not talking about 
the kind of self-centeredness from the narcissistic person who's all day in front of the mirror grooming themselves and changing clothes. I'm talking about the self-centeredness that is more like a mathematical self-centeredness. You've heard me say that before. Where you're the starting point and the ending point of everything in this world. Where everything that happens begins and ends with how it affected you. That is a very serious issue, and it is a poison that settles into the human soul and starts to corrupt and poison everything else that it touches. And it begins to happen in a human life when God is slowly and gradually nudged to the edges, to the periphery, where we're comfortable hearing God say something to us through a sermon or through the Bible passages or even the quiet conviction of our hearts. And we just kind of say to Him, Not yet. Not now. I don't need to be hearing that. Sometimes your friends took a great risk saying something that was difficult for them to say, even more difficult for you to hear, but you desperately needed to hear those words of challenge and correction. And at that point, you said to them and you said to God, not right now, and you of all people don't have the right to say those things to me. You're just not ready, and I understand that. But as God gets pushed to the edges of a human life, He's no longer occupying the center where God, by definition, must live. And when God is no longer the center of things, who is the next most logical choice to occupy that throne? Think about it. It is you. We're convinced we must be the stars of the movie because we're in every scene. That's the way it works. And so we walk through life thinking, well, if God's not the center, who else should sit there? Well, who do you think it's going to be? It's going to be Numero uno. And that's the way that this kind of spiritual poison settles into a person, is that they become the beginning and the end of all things. And that self-centeredness squeezes out all the goodness which God is trying to put into our lives. The only antidote for that poison of the soul is to re-enter God's presence, see Him for who He really meant, means to be to us, and then invite him once again in humility to be reseated on the throne at the center of our lives. The only antidote for self-centeredness is not other-centeredness, it is God-centeredness. Do you understand that? Anyone else you try to put on that throne is not worthy of it, and you will see that very soon. God alone deserves the place at the center of our lives. You know, most of us are so clouded sometimes by self-centeredness that even other people who are important to us are only known in terms of how they affect us. Here's an an example, okay? Most of us don't really know that much about our own parents, do we? You know, my brother's back from Africa. We've been talking about this for months now. We really need to sit down and do a serious genealogy. We need to videotape interviews with my parents as they tell the story of our heritage, of our relatives, our ancestors. I want to know where I came from. I want to know in great detail, recorded for all posterity, how my mom and dad met. I want him to regale us again with stories of his exploits in the Vietnam War as a mass unit surgeon. And the thing is, most of us, the only thing we know of our parents is when we came on the scene. I was born and there were these people. They fed me, they clothed me, they took care of me. It's almost as if they popped into existence when you showed up. But do you realize your parents actually had a life before you? And it was a better life than the one after you? They missed that life a lot. They were cool. They had fun. And some of us, even with a gun to our heads, could not write five pages about our parents. 
Well, maybe you could write five pages of all the ways your parents disappointed you or fell short of the mark or hurt you, but could you write five pages of biographical information about who they are, what their story is? And that just makes me think how we, we think we know someone, but really we only know them for how they affected us. Do we really know who they are? When my dad told me stories about his days before I was born, it just expanded something in me. It opened a whole new person up to me. It could be terribly life-changing to look at a familiar person through new eyes. And I really think that that happens a lot between us and God. And look at, in the beginning of this passage, listen to this. You can miss this if you don't really look carefully. In the year that King Uzziah died, listen to what Isaiah testifies. I saw the Lord. He's not just saying that he saw a magnificent vision. He's saying, I really saw him. Do you ever feel like the people closest to you just look right through you? That you, you know, the people supposed to be the most familiar, you never really look at each other. This happens all the time in my house. It annoys my wife to no end. She's like doing something busy, 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 always busy. I walk right up to her at the stove and I just, I stare at her. And she always goes, what, what? And I'm like, I'm just looking. And I realized, you know, and she's getting so much more used to it now, sometimes she looks at me. And I realize that, you know, the thing is, the people we think we know most, we don't even look at each other. We have a familiar snapshot in our minds, and we're good with that. If you're sitting next to somebody that you're married to or that you live with or someone special to you, you've known a long time, I'm going to ask you to do something for me right now. I want you to turn and look at each other. Just stare into each other's eyes. Do it. I'm, I'm not kidding. This is one of those, I'm going to start calling you out by name if I don't see you do it. I've got a laser pointer on this thing. And don't just glance because then you're just proving my point. We stink at looking at each other. You don't even know what your own spouse looks like. If they got kidnapped, you'd be like, um, pretty sure black hair. Uh, you don't know what they look like. We don't even stare at each other. And the thing about it is we have a, that hard a time even looking at each other's faces. And some of you had a really, really hard... Some of you need to come in for counseling. I'm not kidding. You had such a hard time even just looking at each other's mugs. I wonder how much time you really spend seeing each other. Not just complaining, not just setting standards, but understanding what that person's going through. Knowing their story. When they say the familiar nagging, do you know what it feels like to be them? What generates those words of petition? Do you even know? This happens so often between us and God. We think we know this God. The truth is, it's been a really long time since we saw the Lord. Some of us, it's been since high school. And you're like in your 40s now. And you still remember those amazing moments as a youth when you saw God, how long it's been since you just gazed at Him and saw Him. How powerful then those words. I saw the Lord. The rest of the vision doesn't even matter. The important thing is He saw someone He thought He knew. And that day, He became a whole new person to Him. Listen to what else it says. Above Him were seraphs. That's a fancy word for a particular kind of angels. Angels come in several species, and this is just one of them. And they were flying and covering their faces and their feet. But listen to what they're saying. They're proclaiming to one another in a worshipful tone, Holy, 
Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. What I want us to see from that is every time you really gaze at God, one sure thing will happen. The word holy speaks to God's total otherness, His transcendence. We try to make God more and more like us, but in looking at God, what you start to appreciate is how much unlike us He is. How different, how other, how gloriously distinct He is from us. And it's inspiring to see that. How disappointed would you be if you went to vacation, rented a very expensive hotel room, and it looked exactly like your house? Well, some of you, I mean, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. You have a nice house. If it looked just like my house, I'd want my money back. Because you want to see something other. And every time you gaze at God, I guarantee you one thing will happen. He will expand in your eyes. God never gets smaller when you look at Him. He just never gets smaller when you look at Him. Now that's the interesting thing even about marriage. When you look at your mate, though we're getting older and saggier and droopier and whatever, the longer you look at the person you've shared life with, the more beautiful they become. I can't explain it, but Jeannie still thinks I'm hot. Not that hard to understand. You don't have to laugh so much. But it's not about my looks. It's about how much we've given each other over the years. When you look, the longer you look, the better they become. And with God, it is even more pronounced. You can't really look at God and have Him shrink in your eyes. He becomes holy, transcendent, so that His whole glory where the more you gaze at Him. And look at how it, how it ends there. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. I saw Avatar and IMAX 3D not too long ago, and what was just as impressive as the visuals was the sound, the bone-jarring, jaw-grinding sound, something explosive, and you just go, that's what I like in a good movie. And what I see in this story is that four out of five of Isaiah's senses are engaged. He hears the sound of the angels' voices. He sees a sight almost overwhelmingly brilliant to his eyes. The very building he's in shakes so that he feels it. And then his nose is filled with the aroma of the smoke that comes with God's presence. An incense-like smoke. Only thing missing is taste, and soon he'd have a hot coal on his tongue. I'm not sure if that's taste, but do you see how sensual it is to be with God? And I don't mean sexual, I mean sensual, meaning we're supposed to feel it. You're not supposed to be in church and go, wow, it's over? I was with God, yeah, I'm pretty sure in theory I was with... No, that is not the way it's supposed to be. When you are with God, in His presence, it is right to want to and expect to feel that God has been with us. In the music, in the, the, the feelings of your heart, in everything, we're meant to know that we've been with God. Do you hear that? That's the way it's supposed to be. We see God more clearly. But another amazing thing happens to Isaiah, also happens to us in God's presence. We see ourselves more clearly, don't we? We see ourselves more clearly. You know, I've stared at the night sky lots of times. I have a special fascination with the night sky. 
I love stars. I have a huge collection of Hubble telescope images on my computer, and I look at them an un with an unhealthy frequency. I, I think if I ever had the chance to go to outer space, I would leave my family for at least a year to do it. I'm just putting you on notice now, and if that chance ever comes, I'm going out there. I, I love the stars. And I think what I like about them is that they make me feel experientially the reality of who I am in the grand scheme of things. At the same time, it gives me a sense, and maybe it's one of the only things I've ever seen, that fully gives me a sense of the vastness of my God. I've stared at the ocean and at big fields of grass, but nothing like staring at the night sky to get a sense of reality about who we are in the bigger story. I've never seen the night sky like I did when we were out on a camping trip. It must have been 10 years ago with our college group, and we were at the border of Wisconsin and uh, Iowa and Illinois, I think it was, uh, at this national park. We sat on top of the stone slab, and all of us just laid on the ground staring at the sky, and it was so clear. Some of you might have been there with us. So clear we could see satellites arcing across the sky. It's crazy. I've never seen the sky so clear. And after laying there for like an hour, more and more stars would become visible. And I had the sensation of laying on the surface of the planet, being in outer space. An amazing thing. Almost all of us fell asleep out there and woke up freezing at like 2 in the morning. It was hypnotizing. And what I loved about it is I got a sense of my smallness and God's greatness, and it was so palpable. And all the things I carried with me to that camping trip, little dramas that were seeming so large in my life, seemed to just melt away because I finally had context for understanding just how really important all this stuff really was in the vastness of eternity. Isn't it interesting that back in verse 2 it says, Above him were seraphs. That word seraph is a very hard-to-translate Hebrew word. The best translation I can find means burning ones. Burning ones. Meaning they shone so brilliantly, it was like staring into the heart of a very bright flame. This is the day before incandescent bulbs where the, the greatest light came from flames, right? And so the best way for these ancients to describe the vision of angels was like blinding light. They were burning with brightness. Now keep that in mind, it's important, because it says that these angels have six wings, three pairs, okay? And what they were doing in their brilliance in the sight of God was with their top wings, they were covering their faces. With their bottom wings, they were covering their feet. And with the two wings they had left, they were staying afloat. Do you see what that's, that's communicating to us? that these beings, if even one of them walked into this room, you could not look up. I've been playing this game lately with my kids. They really don't like it. But I've got, I bought this very bright LED um, flashlight. You know, you know, LED flashlights are almost painfully bright. And I've been shining it into my kids' faces and surprising them. And I'm just that kind of father. <laughs> my kids don't like it. It's really bright. They're like, ow, and he blinds you for a while. That is nothing compared to a seraph. And if one of those beings hovered here, none of us could even look up. Yet these beings of brilliance in God's sight are so ashamed of their brightness, which seems dull in comparison to His, that they seek with the available wings they have to cover up their shabby brilliance. Here's, I think, the emotional 
profile what they were feeling. I shared the story once before. Bear with me as I share it again. When I was in high school, I attended this retreat. And in high school, I knew how to play piano well enough to look like I knew what I was doing. Well enough to impress the ladies, if you know what I mean. I had like five songs in my repertoire, and I could play them really well. And I was in this little room in the retreat center, and there were the, these five girls that I really kind of had a fancy for. And I was kind of interested. I was figuring out which one am I going to attract today. And I'm playing the piano, and they're like, oh, he's so good. But there was this other guy in the youth group who's really good at piano. He's a good friend of mine. I, I had nothing against him, but that was like my private moment, and I was on my game. And he walks into that room, and he's like, hey, guys, what are you doing? And what I did right away, my hands left the piano. I was like, nothing. I'm not doing anything. And the girl's like, no, that's not true. He's playing piano, and he's so awesome. And my friend kind of looks at me knowingly. He goes, yeah, he's pretty good. And then he goes, can I play something? You know what's so funny about that? I was feeling on top of the world when it was just me. But the minute true greatness walked into the room, I suddenly didn't even want to be identified as the guy who was playing piano. Because for all my perceived greatness, when someone truly great enters the picture, it makes you feel embarrassed about all the pride you were feeling before. I think all of us know what that feels like. To believe we're shining and someone brighter happens to come on the scene. And it bugs us inside, doesn't it? Because their brilliance reminds you of your darkness, your dullness. Now, whenever someone else does that, it's a threat. We don't respond well. But in the brilliance of God, something amazing happens. It reflects off of us. And we see ourselves rightly, and then we inherit God's brilliance as a gift. That's why it says repeatedly in the Bible, the proud never really understand what it is to know God. Because as we're proud, God's only agenda can be to put us back in our place so that we can understand who we rightly are. It's the humble who get to reflect the brilliance and the glory of God. First thing Isaiah says when he sees God is, Woe to me! That word woe is awesome. In Hebrew, do you know what it is? Oi! Have you ever heard your Jewish friends say oi? I'm actually saying that word more and more as I get older, and when I stand up from sitting a long time, I go, oh, oi! Woe is me. I am messed up. Look at this. Have you ever just really looked in the mirror, and the longer you look, the more dissatisfied and upset you get? And what's staring back? I recently went through that. I just, come on, for real? I prefer the mental picture I have of myself than the actual picture looking back. When we are in God's presence, we finally see ourselves properly. And what happens then is we realize we're not as great as we previously thought we were. And that's when true repentance can begin. Repentance is not just groveling in sorrow and self-deprecation. It is saying, I once thought I was great on my own, but now in the sight of God, I see what greatness is and I don't have it. I come emptied of myself for all my achievements and all the things I've managed to do for myself and others. 
in God's sight, I see true greatness and it humbles me. So that later, Isaiah was able to write in Isaiah 64, 6, all our best and righteous acts are like filthy rags. That's probably overstating things, but I think I know where that came from because Isaiah once saw God and in the same instant, he saw himself rightly. I guess how you measure up depends on the unit of measure, which standard you pick. And for most of us to stay sane, we compete against people we know we can beat. Isn't that true? I I noticed that in a circle of friends, it's rare to find two really pretty girls hanging out in the same circle. Because this town ain't big enough for the both of us. You get your own crew. I got mine already. And I'm the pretty girl around here. I'm the smart one. I don't like you outdoing me and correcting my quotations and, and statistics and all that. We like to compete with people we know we can beat. That's just human nature. That's not just you. It's me. It's everyone. And sometimes because we do that, we come out smelling pretty good. We believe our own press. We're quite impressed with the legend in our own mind of who we are. But whenever we enter God's presence, we get a dose of sobering reality. And it's not meant to destroy you, but to take the blinders off and clear the fog away. Because once you see yourself rightly, you can actually relate to God on the right terms. And as Isaiah repents, and he he confesses, I am nobody, I thought I was somebody. But I see now that I really am not. And God then says, and the angel comes back down, and he says to him, look, the angel comes down, and he takes a hot coal and says, listen, I forgive you. In the authority of God, Your sins are atoned for because you saw yourself and realized that in you is no righteousness. You will now receive the righteousness that God gives. In other words, those willing to admit their own indignity will receive the gift of God's dignity. That's the only way you can relate to God. On any other terms, you can't. Let me give you one last thing which Isaiah the prophet saw more clearly. Having seen God and then seen himself as he really was, he is now ready to look at the world and understand what he's seeing. You know, ministry can be a very hard life. I don't say that to make you feel sorry for me or buy me gifts or something. I'm just saying that because some of you are headed that way and I don't want you to have any illusions about this life. It can be pretty hard, even for a guy like Bill Hybels, who's got a very large sailboat and a summer home that he gets to go to for three months to write sermons for the year. Man, jealous. Even for a guy like him, with all the burdens and pressures of this ministry life, he said in a public setting before, in my hearing, that sometimes I get these really unhealthy fantasies of just pointing my sailboat out Riding off into the sunset, never coming back. My family, my church, they never hear from me again. I just disappear and be free. For me, it's not a sailboat, it's a motorcycle. But nonetheless, I have escapist fantasies from time to time because the pressures of this work can really mount. And some of you know what I'm talking about because your job is just like that. You start to get these ideas of just running away from it all leaving everything behind because it's too much weight on you. 
Now, ministry is a little harder in the sense that I can't just quit my profession because then I'm quitting on God, and that's a really great deal of pressure to be under. So I'm wondering, how is it that this insane guy can so quickly say, his, and God's not even calling, it's not even a formal recruitment drive, God's like passive-aggressively hinting, uh, who will go for us, I wonder? And then he talks to the other members of the Trinity, and who shall we send, who will go for us? He's not even talking to Isaiah yet, and here's Isaiah, oh, 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 pick me. You see the exclamation point there? Here am I, send me, ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, you're serious as a student when you brought that other arm back and you're holding up this one to support it. You really wanted to be teacher's pet. And I'm looking at this guy thinking, what do you think you're signing up for, vacation? Do you think you're going to an oceanside resort? You're signing up to be a prophet in a time when no one wants to hear God's voice. People were so committed to their way of living against God's word that anyone who spoke up for God was shut up. Very unpopular. Go tell it to somebody who cares. In fact, they were so miserable and so committed to their rebellion that the people were regularly beating and even murdering the prophets of God who dared to stand up and speak up for God to a rebellious people. I don't know about you, but that wouldn't be exactly the best booth at the job fair. Anybody want to be persecuted and maybe die for saying unpopular things to people who are pretty happy with their lives? Anyone? Who wants to sign up? Do you realize that Isaiah was jumping up and down volunteering for something that nobody should in their right mind want to do? And I wonder what happened to this guy that he had this state of mind. I think what I understand is he finally saw God and then he could see reality clearly again for the first time. If he just walked around the streets of Jerusalem, he would never have the courage to volunteer for God because that's the reality you see with your eyes. The, the word on the street discourages, it stifles, it quenches the fire of God. But when you enter God's presence, somehow you can make sense of all that out there through a very different lens. Things quiet down and you begin to understand everything in context. You know, I think when we become self-centered, when everything's about how happy I want to be, how secure I want to be, what happens is my world starts to shrink. And this is an image I found that reminds me of what happens. It's what I call the shrinking universe. For the person who is self-centered, let's face it, because we're not infinite, we can only manage to understand the world according to the boundaries we care about. And for most of us, this is our reality. That my little dramas, my little agendas, my little plans are the whole world and its boundary. You guys saw the movie The Truman Show? Do you realize a lot of us live in there? If you haven't seen it, it's fascinating. You've got to watch that movie. What are you guys watching anyway? <laughs> watch The Truman Show. It's a, well, I'm not going to give it away, but you'll understand what I mean. When it's like living in a snow globe, you think it's real, but what happens when you pick up a snow globe and even shake it a little bit? Just gently turn it upside down once and set it back up. In a small world, a microcosm like that, even the slightest jiggling creates a violent storm inside. All the snow swirls around, and if you were in the snow globe, even the slightest tremor would send you into chaos. And I see that with so many people. They come speaking of, of tragedy and crisis, 
And all I can think in my heart is how small must your world have become that even this threatens to destroy you. It's big. I'm not, I'm not making light of people's struggles. But if they could see the bigger world, the reality as it is, this trial they're going through would have some context. But when you don't have that, everything closes in on you and the smallest disturbance sends you reeling into oblivion. Do you understand that? And I think that's the experience some of you have. You're so irritable. You're so easily offended. It doesn't take much to get you going. Your child just says one thing. You're like, there you go again. Whack, 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 whack. Your spouse, just, I'm leaving. When you're ready to act like a grown-up, talk to me. And you just storm out of the house. It doesn't take much right now because your world is so delicately tiny that even the littlest jiggle and you can't cope with what happens inside that little world. But when you see God's presence and then you see yourself, suddenly the world expands. And it's no longer just about your little story, but it becomes connected to this greater story of God. And you can say honestly, this too shall pass. Because God has always been victorious. He's on the march and he's an undefeatable king. He's got legions standing with him and he has seen people through much worse than this. I can weather everything and there's a greater purpose for which my life is aimed than just being happy and surviving. And when you see that, you can see reality clearly enough that for the first time you can honestly say to God, I'm in. Pick me. I don't think it's possible to make a decision for God until you've really spent time in his presence. It can't be about the work and about justice and crusading and doing good and bringing a better world. It can't be about those things. You can never make a real commitment to God unless you've spent that time in his presence and you've seen him and you've seen yourself correctly. But when you do that, how many of you wear glasses or have some corrected vision? Just raise your hand. Look at all of us who watch too much TV growing up, right? Now, do you remember when you were first starting to realize your eyes were getting blurry? Holy mackerel, I can't see anybody right now. But remember when you first started getting bad eyes and you were like, I can't really see that road sign and all that? And you thought it wasn't that bad because it was so gradual. But then you went to the optometrist and you got your first pair of glasses. Remember this? And you put it on and formerly attractive people were not so attractive anymore. Oh, ooh, ooh, yeah. And things that you thought you saw clearly, you're like, whoa, the whole world is in high def. And I was watching it on an old tube TV. My wife, for the first time recently on a little shopping trip, I showed her Blu-ray. So gratifying. I was trying to tell her it's awesome. She's like, whatever. She sees and goes, what's that? I was like, that, my dear, is Blu-ray. She, got, she looked at it once. The scales fell off, and she was sold. We will, in time, be the proud owners of a Blu-ray technology in our home. And I'm telling you, when you see it, you wonder, how do we ever watch TV the old way? If you, you remember watching the Bulls games in the old days, in the 80s, the Jordan era? You're like, who is that? Who's got the ball? I think it's number two something, 23 maybe. That's why he had all the signature moves, because you can't tell who it is unless you see this, right? Now with high depth, these guys have to pluck their nose hairs before the game. 
That's what it's like to see God and then you step out into your world and everything looks different, crystal clear. You understand the value of things. You understand what the word important really means. You now know what's urgent, what's worthy of a life and what's not. And suddenly, everything's in focus. And you can make big decisions now. You take off those glasses, even driving a familiar route is a scary experience when you can't see clearly. But you put your glasses on full speed ahead because now I know where I'm going. That's what some of you really needed to hear this morning, I believe, is that the world is blurry because you cannot see. The only place where we're ever going to learn to see clearly is in God's presence. I think it happens, it starts here, but it doesn't have to end here. You're invited every day to spend some time right there with Him, putting the glasses on. Do it in the morning. Get those contacts in. Walk through your day, and you'll see everything so much better. Let's be people who hold out for the presence of God as the one indispensable ingredient in our lives. And if that doesn't happen, we are definitely poorer, no matter how rich the rest of the experience was. I'm going to invite you to pray together with me. And let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> we're doing okay on time. We're going to take about three minutes or so, maybe five. And I, want to, I would like to give you, on this first Sunday of the year, I want to just give you some significant time to just get with God. And I guess the invitation I'm making to you is the same invitation Morpheus made to Neo in The Matrix. Do you want to take the blue pill and keep on living in the illusion? Or do you want to take the red pill and wake up? Do you want to feel for the first time like you've set feet in the real world? Spend a little time. Some music will be playing, but I want to just ask you to get quiet before God and reflect on what you're seeing. How clearly are you seeing God? It's been a long time since you really looked at Him. I wonder how you see yourself. I wonder if it's accurate. I bet in God's presence, you'll look a little different in the mirror. And then having done that, I'm going to encourage us to really think again about our family life and our careers and just the reality around us, the times in which we live. And see if spending time in God's presence doesn't clear your focus for this reality we're living in. Let's go to prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.